I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, y'all, um, I'm back here on Weekends with Waz, of course. I'm Big Waz, a.k.a. Waz Land Bray, and I'm joined by a very special guest, a great friend of mine, one of the biggest beasts in NBA mm. media out there, period. My man, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, Ben Gulliver, was popping, bro. Not too much, Waz. It's great to be here. I just want to say quickly, congratulations on your um, your rise, your success here over the last <laughs> couple of years. It's been awesome to watch your pandemic superstar. And I also <laughs> wanted to just thank you for taking a break from all the kitty cat thirst traps on Instagram <laughs> to actually have a conversation about basketball with me, bro. We're going to take the thirst traps off, Mike. But um, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. But man... um. Wanted to talk a little bit of Westbrook because obviously you're local here to L.A. And I know you got a lot of Lakers thoughts. Of course, you've been a big Embiid guy for a minute. So I do want to talk to you about the season that Embiid is putting together and what's happening in Philly. But, man, we got you here today at a perfect time because March Madness is starting up. And you just came back from the West Coast Conference Championship where you watched Chet Holmgren get busy. And from what I understand, Ben, um, you've become, you've been converted. You're now um, part of the Church of Chet. So I was already in, but now I'm like head over heels. Let me just paint this picture for you. So we're talking about like an off-strip casino gym that sits like <laughs> 5,000 people, right? You've got uh, R.C. Buford, San Antonio Spurs architect, showing up an hour early to watch this guy. You've got mm. John Hammond, the guy who drafts Giannis, Mm. sitting courtside, kind of salivating, right? You've got mm. Bobby Webster, uh, Masai Ujiri's right-hand man with the Toronto Raptors, taking him in in person. And this is the West Coast Conference Tournament. I mean, this is not the ACC, right? This right. is not exactly what you would typically, uh, typically consider the biggest stage in college basketball. But everybody wants to see this guy. Consider this. He's listed at 7 feet, 195 pounds. <laughs> so he's as tall as Joel Embiid, but he weighs as much as Kyrie Irving. You know what I'm saying? Like he, this guy's in his own galaxy when it comes to the dimensions. So that kind of is what gets everybody interested and intrigued off the top, right? But he's got this incredible motor, a great heart. He's about all the right things. He picks Gonzaga, which is sort of this like very balanced, unselfish program. So mm -hmm. he's not even really featured there. I mean, they're not even unleashing this guy. And yet he's just all over the court, blocking shots, throwing down dunks through traffic. I mean, he'll step out and shoot a three-pointer, no problem. And I, I don't know. It's just he's such a unique player. And then you throw on top of that, he could potentially be the first white American-born player to go number one since the mid-1970s. I mean, almost wow. 50 years that, that this hasn't happened, right? So I'm just telling you, Waz, like, imagine the best-case scenario for this guy's career. It's absolutely mind-blowing on and off the court what this guy could do. 
So I, I want to get into what he's doing on the court first because I can't pretend that I've watched a bunch of Gonzaga games this year. Um, I want to know what, what was the book on him coming in to the tournament and what you came away from as you watched him up close and was like, wow, this is a little bit more than even I thought. Well, the book is always, God, this guy is skinny. You've never mm. seen a guy this skinny. I mean, you look at his thighs. He has the smallest thighs of any top prospect I think I've ever seen in my entire life, right? So if you're talking about lower body strength, core strength, it's just not there. I mean, he's seven foot, 195 pounds, right? But what I think people need to differentiate is that just because he's light, it doesn't mean he's necessarily gangly with how tall he is, right? Like, I think people think bull, bull, right? Or they mm. think Chris Stapps Porzingis when they hear these measurements, and that's not it. I mean, this guy is super fluid. He's a hooper. I mean, he was Minnesota's Mr. Basketball as a high school player, won four straight titles there. Um, and he's very, very competitive. And so while he gets kind of picked up and, and uh, displaced in the paint, you know, pretty regularly by college guys, like he goes down there and they're just going to wrap him up, try to wrestle with him, you know, get him off the block. And, and they're going to have success doing that. He's super comfortable with the ball in his hands. He can grab a defensive rebound, go up the court, walk into a, a three-pointer, and so I guess I view him, he's a little bit more KD than KP, right? Like he moves more like a Kevin mm. Durant wow. than he does like a Chris Stapps Porzingis. And that's not to say he has that level of ceiling because I, I think what I saw from Durant, even at a very early age, is the killer instinct, right? It's mm. the sniper part of easy money sniper. And that's what we're waiting to see from Chet. He's very competitive. Like he will not back down. If you go into his chest, he's going to try to block your shot. He's not weak-minded in any way. But he's also not necessarily the takeover guy yet because he's a freshman on a team where everybody basically averages double figures. They share the ball. They've got this amazing number one ranked offense and they don't need him to be the guy. And so when you're looking forward kind of like for NBA fits, that's where it gets so interesting because you could imagine a team like the Thunder or the Spurs where they have mm. the kind of like that collective approach. You could imagine them salivating at dropping him into their system, right? But if you put him out there with Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green, and those guys are just dribbling all day long and chucking <laughs> all day long, like he might get lost. Like it's very mm. possible, right? And so, you know, one other interesting, uh, you know, uh, landing spot for him would be like with Cade Cunningham in Detroit, right? You've got this amazing, uh, you know, pick and pop, pick and roll type, uh, you know, combination. Check and handle the interior defense. Cade can handle the lead playmaking. That could be absolutely sweet, right? So um, I guess, you know, for me, you know, to long story short, the book is just body, body, body. Like he's got this weird frame. We've never seen anything like it. And there's just so many more layers to who he is as a player than just the body. So, man, it's interesting because I used to be somebody who was skeptical whenever people would be like, oh, such and such needs to put on weight. I'm like, all right, the kid's 19. By the time he's my age, he's going to have a beer belly. He's going to feel out. Like, that's just the natural progression of life, right? But then, honestly, and you bring up KP because I think KP is instructive. And when you talk to people around the Mavs, it's like, it's not that he didn't work on getting stronger. The guy has a really high center of gravity. And there's kind of nothing he could do about that. Do we think Chet will be able to develop that core strength that's necessary to move guys and actually take advantage of his height and his length and his size. Well, he can only get stronger. I guess I would put it that way. I mean, look, even his coach is just honest about it. He's like, look, there's times where this guy just gets thrown around like a ragdoll. He's struggled at times during his freshman year. So it's definitely an issue. But what I love about Chet as a 2022 prospect is that I think it's 
less damaging than it would have been 10 years ago or especially compared to like 20 years ago. I mean, like he's not going to hold up against like the Charles Oakleys and the Davis brothers of the world, right? right? But if you're playing him as a power forward on offense where he's floating around the perimeter and able to cut and drive and doing a lot of similar stuff to a player like Brandon Ingram on offense, right? And just getting into mid-range jumpers and and creating like that. And then, of course, finishing lob plays over the top. Like, I don't know if you have to be some super you know, he-man type strength guy to get that kind of stuff done. And defensively, what's interesting about him, uh, he blocks a lot of shots sort of like Rudy Gobert does. It's like the sneak blocks that people aren't expecting. Where <laughs> he's just longer um, than, than uh, guys with the ball, ball handlers expect. So he'll just come flying across the paint, snatch a shot that, you know, a guy puts up as a runner who thinks he's going to be able to kind of teardrop over the top of him. He'll just snatch that thing and go the other way. And so, I think he, even though he's listed at seven feet, 195, I think he looks taller, lighter, and longer uh, than those measurements. And he's got a seven, six wingspan, right? So, I mean, he's got some real ability to impact the game defensively without, you know, really adding a ton of weight just because of his length. And I do think you're going to want to play him uh, as a four defensively, if you can too, right? So, you know, you imagine him like in Orlando. Well, you would have Wendell Carter Jr. playing center. Chet's playing four, right? I mean, maybe in, in Detroit, it would be Isaiah Stewart's playing center. Mm, yep. Chet's taller and longer, but he's playing power forward. That's how I would do it personally. Um, and, you know, in, in the NBA, how often do we see guys get isolated and picked on as post-up mis- mismatches, right? Like, you know, people go out, Steph Curry or, you know, some of these smaller guards. You don't usually see fours and fives, like everybody just breaking the offense to try to go attack them. So it could happen once in a while. He's going to struggle against players like Embiid and Jokic who are just going to muscle him all over the court. But right? they muscle Giannis everybody. Is, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And I think you can kind of get by in most of those matchups, right? So um, I'm way higher on his, you know, his positives than I'm concerned about his negatives. I put it that way. Man, I got to say, you kind of got me sold because to me, once a big guy has it in his mind that he's going to make his bones on defense and actually, you know, dedicates his energy to being great on that end, um, that, to me, that says a lot about a guy's mentality and his willingness to do a, the requisite amount of work to become a special player. So you're on the check train. You think he's the number one prospect in this draft. You like him better than Paolo. You like him better than the Auburn kid. I like him as the number one prospect. I mean, obviously, it's going to depend on context and who else you have around him and everything else. The other thing I like about him, and this is like, you know, really old school. This is like 75-year-old man stuff, but it's the emotional quotient. So I'm going to give you two scenes from the end of the game, okay? First, um, they're celebrating their West Coast Conference title, and one of his teammates, like, takes an elbow to the nose and is, like, all shook up, right? (laughs) The first person to check on him is Chet, who stops dead in his tracks, looks at him, and is like, are you okay? I thought he was about to give a mouth-to-mouth, Waz. I'm dead serious. Like, (laughs) he was that concerned about his fellow man, right? So then, fast forward five minutes, and they're trying to cut down the nets, and one of his teammates can't get the scissors to work. Who's the first person to volunteer to be like, hey, let me help you out, bro. I'm going to help you with the scissors. It's Chet. Everybody else was standing around waiting for this guy taking three minutes to cut the net, and Chet's the first person to volunteer. He's just a nice kid. And I think, you know, you see that with guys like Giannis and Tim Duncan, where you're talking about leadership personalities. Maybe not they're not going to be the loudest guys in the room. And Chet does strike me as a very even-keeled, quiet type of guy. But he's also the person I think you could build a, an organizational culture that's positive around him, especially if you're in one of these small markets where, you know, you just need to have somebody who's going to stay, right? And somebody right. who really is going to buy into your environment. 
I think Chet really checks uh, checks those boxes as well. Man, I love it. Great, great, great stuff. Um, you went to the West Coast Championship and actually enjoyed your experience. That's <laughs> that's that's well, wonderful. Here, here's the thing: if my choices are Westbrook yet again, or <laughs> let's hop on, let's hop on this Chet train. Come on, man. This, the crypto, I mean, crypt has been toxic, has it not? I mean, these games are tough to go to, boss. Oh, God, let's get into it, man. Um, I don't know where you were when the trade went down last offseason, but I remember being extremely down on it, then stupidly mm. and foolishly talking myself into, well, not that Russ has ever demonstrated that he's willing to change his game and do different things and try another way to be a successful NBA player. But who knows? Maybe, you know, the LeBron effect to have him changing his game, scaling it down, being a smarter player through osmosis. I talked myself into LeBron making this thing work yeah. because I've seen him make so much shit work in the past. And I stupidly talked myself into it. What were you thinking when the trade went down? And how has it been to see this whole thing come full circle to the complete and utter unmitigated disaster that it's become? Now, I'll be honest, I've been out on Westbrook since KD left him. I mean, ever since he was doing the photographer vest and the cupcake stuff, I've just been 100% out. And that has just ramped up at every stop. So coming into this season after watching it just not work with Harden, not work with Bradley Beal, um, I was like, look, you know, LeBron could carry this team to a three or four seed by himself, right? But I don't see Westbrook being a central part of their championship formula. The first game of the season, my column was, you have to play Westbrook less. You cannot be this dependent on this guy. It's just too many mistakes, especially in late game scenarios. And so um, that has just not unfolded, right? Frank Vogel has not really cut his role. He's one of the leading minutes guys in the entire league, which is just astonishing to <laughs> me. Um, and he's earned all the boos that he's received in, in Los Angeles. I mean, he doesn't have the shot selection understanding. He doesn't have the self-awareness of his limitations. He's made so many critical turnovers in late game situations. And then defensively, man, if teammates could boo each other, LeBron <laughs> would boo Westbrook on the defensive end almost every single night, man. The, the looks and the glares that these guys exchange when they don't make the right rotations defensively is wild to see in person, right? And I don't blame LeBron for it. They're sticking him out there as a center, and you know Westbrook's breaking down all over the place. So I, it's just been a nightmare. They have to trade him. I would have tried to trade him um, at the deadline if I could, and I would have considered you know giving up the pick and whatever else just to move forward. I understand why they didn't, but this summer they have to work out a resolution. They cannot bring this guy back next year. I'm glad you brought up LeBron because, <clears throat> look, let's face it, AD's the second best player on the team, but AD is nobody's version of a leader, right? Um, I don't think a AD couldn't lead a whore to bed. Let's put it like Whoa. that, right? He's he's not a leader. That's just not what he does. He shows up, he hoops, he plays hard most of the time, but he's not some galvanizing figure. He's not going to spearhead any culture in any organization that he's at, which is why LeBron's kind of the perfect teammate for him. And so I bring up LeBron because, you know, you're around the team a decent amount, even with the limited access. Thanks for nothing, Adam Silver that guys are getting these days. You're around the team a lot. What's your sense of LeBron's sort of feelings around what's happening? Because he seemed pretty optimistic about it coming into the season. And he was like, yeah, we're going to make this thing work. And Russ is all the famer and blah, 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 blah. But you could tell some of the confidence has just been just 
sucked out of him. Well, I mean, last summer he tweeted, haters keep the same energy, right? The haters kept the energy was. The haters had no problem with the energy and the stamina. They've been there every single night and they've been oh, proven God. right. And I think he's actually kind of shrinked away from some of it, right? I, I don't, I think it was a little bit of hubris on LeBron's part, believing he could make it work with anyone um, like you've described, because he's had so many different success stories. And, you know, I think he put in a good faith effort and it just really never came together. It's kind of oil and water. When I look back at this last couple of weeks, so here's what I think is so fascinating about the dynamic between Russ and LeBron. So Westbrook comes out and makes this entire stand about don't call me Westbrook. It's disrespectful to my family and everything else. How many people with the Lakers or around the Lakers really came loudly to Westbrook's defense? I saw mm. one tweet for Magic Johnson, and this guy will tweet about like I have a speech at like you know uh, Epson you know printer festival, and like he'll tweet <laughs> about anything, right? So I don't think getting one tweet for Magic is you know really a sign of major support. And then you look at how LeBron has handled things since you know that statement. It's like 250 balls. He's going out there and just basically doing it all by himself. And then in the media, what did he say? He said, look, the Lakers fans have the right to be as upset as they want to be, right? We've got to give them a reason to watch basketball. That's like the exact opposite of what I think Westbrook was probably expecting when he took this stand, right? Like, don't you think when he's coming out there and saying, oh, it's all about my family, he thinks everyone's going to kind of rally and support. And I just think, you know, the way he planned that whole thing it was one of the worst decisions in a season of terrible decisions because how can you guarantee everyone calls you Westbrook for the rest of your life? <laughs> Tell them that it really bothers you, right? Like, just let, <laughs> let everyone know this really, really upsets me. And that's everyone's going to call you that forever now. You know, it's just going to ramp up. And, you know, and look, I feel bad. And there's no reason to feel bad for Russ. He's making 40-something million dollars this year. He's going to make another 50 next year. Um, he's very handsomely paid to be mediocre. And there's not, we don't need to cry for these guys. But by all accounts, he's a quality dude. And, like, people, like, outside of the, you know, the scowling and the ridiculousness on the court, off the court, he's known as a really affable and great dude. So I do feel bad that it's gone so horribly for him. But all this is of his own doing. Like, there's been no adjustment. There's been no just self-awareness or recognition that things have to change in order for success to be maintained over there. And it's just been so fucking terrible to watch. Well, imagine if he had come out, instead of done this whole Westbrook thing, if he had come out and done exactly what your advising was, if he had said, hey, look, man, like, I'm not having a good year. The fit hasn't been right. I'm not shooting the ball well. Um, you know, I, I, it's all on my shoulders. I'm not the same guy I was two years ago. I'm trying to make it work. Like if he had kind of opened himself up in that way, made himself vulnerable and sort of appealed to people like, Hey man, look, I know I'm not playing well this year. Please stop booing me. I think people might've stopped booing him. Right. But when you're just like, don't call me this, you know, it's like off limits to have nicknames. That's like one of the most central aspects of sports commentary and sports fandom is having nicknames for your favorite players and your least favorite players. Like, how did he expect that really to go? Like, Adam Silver was going to ban the name Westbrook like for the next three years? I mean, what, what did he think was going to come from it? Oh so, I don't know. I, I understand what you're saying, especially on the things like, you know, death threats or comments about his yeah, family or any on. of that stuff. Like, that's all out of bounds. Everybody knows that. But he's got to be a little bit more nuanced in his understanding of how this relationship works. I don't think he understands exactly how bad his season has gone from an outside perspective at all. Yeah. And so, you know, Ben's here in Los Angeles with us. The Lakers season has been a disaster. Of course, the Clippers, two superstars are riddled with injuries. 
it was only two short years ago, Ben, when it felt like the basketball <laughs> universe revolved around Los Angeles between those two teams. And now they're just so irrelevant and afterthoughts. Um, it's just crazy how that goes. You're not excited for like a 9-10 playing round mix or 8-9 <laughs> playing game between Clippers and Lakers? What if everybody comes back healthy for one night? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yo, the, the Luke Kennard stands have been in my mentions lately, Ben, because I pointed out that he was getting coaches DMPs in the playoffs last year. So somehow that makes me some huge shithead. I'm like, yo, fam, his own coach didn't play him. That's not me. Well, I've been hearing the same thing from Reggie Jackson fans because I used to call him Root Canal Reggie in Detroit because I thought it was more painful to watch him run the offense than go to a dental appointment. He's having a great comeback year. Like, there are good stories with the Clippers, but the problem is, like, the cute story eight-seed Clippers is not what Steve Ballmer put out, you know, however many hundreds of millions of dollars for, right? He wanted a championship contender. Imagine if that team was healthy uh, this year, though. I think they'd be the two-seed right now, probably maybe even – fighting with Phoenix, and then it would be this huge conversation of like, well, who matches up better with whom, right? Like, you have all that wing talent for the Clippers. That's a lot of problems they pose for Phoenix. Maybe they're going to win the Western Conference this year, but saying, like, if the Clippers are healthy is like saying if picks fly, you know? I mean, like, Paul George, he gave us one great month. It's been a long time since we've seen him. Kawhi Leonard, I almost don't even remember what he looks like because, I mean, this guy hasn't played for, you know, very much over these last couple of years. So hopefully they can get it back together next year and, and make the run that Ballmer was expecting to make. But, um, you know, I do lo- worry a little bit, like when those contracts start ballooning a little mm-hmm. bit more and more and they're mm-hmm. having trouble adding players around the edges, you know, w- what's the end game for the Clippers? I worry about that too. It's a shame they shit the bed in the bubble and we didn't get that Lakers series. Moving on, I want to end the show on the Eastern Conference. Um, I want to talk about Joel Embiid, who basically on a permanent basis has been neck and neck with Jokic, with Giannis as the best player in the NBA this season. Of course, they make a blockbuster trade. They got pantsed by Brooklyn in their home stadium uh, the other night. I went on Bill's podcast and talked about that. I didn't want to dance on the graves. It's just one game, but... Look, man, there was a lot of freaking belly aching and backpack, back, back padding from Sixers fans of, you know, victory laps. We got James. We're going to the championship, all of that. What have you seen so far from MB? Because he's still the most crucial player on the team, despite James Harden being MVP candidate, MVP winner, Hall of Famer, all of that. What have you seen so far since Harden has come on board? Well, I think you nailed it on the head. I mean, he's been one of the best players in the league this year, right? I think he's been re-energized, reinvigorated by Harden's arrival. His life has gotten a lot easier since Harden showed up. But here's my question to you. After that Brooklyn game, why does James Harden get all of the criticism, but Joel Embiid doesn't get hardly any fraction Mm. of the criticism, right? Like, I look at Harden, obviously, three for 17. That's a terrible game. Like, that's an F game. He did not show up. It's his former team. KD took it personal. Katie punked them, and it was over pretty quick, right? But the the track record that I've seen from Joel Embiid in some different moments, whether it was certain times of that, you know, Toronto Raptors series, whether mm. it was in the bubble without Simmons, um, mm. and, and other points, he doesn't necessarily always rise to the moment either. Game seven against Atlanta, another um, great example where there's turnovers, there's some, uh, you know, low focus plays hmm. on his behalf. He doesn't necessarily always have that huge defensive impact. Um, when the going gets tough. And I thought he didn't show up at all Mm. against Brooklyn. 
And, you know, I look at the, you know, he's not ready to go. As you mentioned, he's their best player. So it's his team, right? Were the Sixers ready to go? If they're not ready to go, you blame that on Embiid. You don't blame that on Harden, right? And then how do you adjust when it's clear Harden's not playing well? As the best player, you need to have some sort of a backup plan involved. And I just thought, you know, basically by the second half of that game, Embiid had quit. He's throwing the ball all over the Mm. court. He's not really working that hard. And he got locked up by Andre Drummond. How is that happening? Like, what? come on, man. That's not supposed to happen in a big game, right? Yeah. So I just think he's got this amazing dynamic in Philly where everybody gets in line like it's a Destiny's Child video. They're in formation, man, to protect Embiid at all costs from any type of criticism. And it's been this smooth transition from uh, Ben Simmons' scapegoat to James Harden the scapegoat. And, you know, mm. Tobias Harris probably – you know, he's so happy because he's off the hook now. He doesn't yeah, have to completely. be the scapegoat now yeah. that James Hart is there. But when do we start saying, hey, come on, Joel, it's time to show up in some of these big games and play better? You know, Ben, you know what? That's interesting because over the years, I've had a lot of spicy talk for Ben Simmons because I've been off of that for like three years now. <laughs> yeah, well, a understandably. A lot of spicy talk for Tobias Harris. A lot of spicy talk for Brett Brown. You're right. Like, it's been everybody else's fault all along the way. And Joel has definitely escaped so much criticism in the past. I like that you come in on weekends with Waz to give the spiciest Joel takes (laughs) that I've ever heard. I'm, I'm, I'm into this, Ben. Well, here's the thing. He's obviously so much cooler than every other person you just named. So it's completely (laughs) natural that you're going to, like, if you're picking sides, who are you going to defend? Joel or Brett Brown? Joel or Tobias? Joel or Ben Simmons? It's obvious, right? But um, I just think that, you know, they've been in a situation, like, they've been building and spending money around him for multiple years now, right? Like, Mm. there's been some moments where he had, you know, pivotal opportunities to take the next step in his career. I look at Game 7 against Atlanta as a perfect example of that. Everybody focuses on Ben Simmons uh, missing the dunk or not taking the dunk, right? How many turnovers did Embiid have in that fourth quarter? How many points is he scoring down the stretch? Why is he fatigued? Why is he not playing 45 (laughs) minutes in that game? Is his body right in those particular situations? I'm not saying he's a bum by any stretch. I mean, don't get it twisted. He's obviously a very, very talented player, But I do think even a guy like Giannis, when they were going through their stuff before they won the title, took a lot more heat than even a guy Mm. like Embiid does. That's fair. And if he's only ducking this stuff because he's funny on Twitter and like he's a good guy, that's not a good enough reason. You know what I mean? He has to show up and be the best player on the court. And if you're picking up sides from that Nets Sixers game, man, it's KD1 and you're going a long way before you get to Embiid at two. Yeah. I love it. Ben Golliver on Weekends with Waz. Holding the superstars accountable. You're not going to get this shit nowhere else, people. Lastly, man, I'm always excited to talk to you about Giannis because the truth of the matter is you were the first Giannis stand in my life and (laughs) you have been waving the Giannis flag for so long and so proudly, even after, you know, the botch series against Toronto, the debacle that was the Miami Heat series and the bubble, you held steadfast. You were rewarded for your loyalty last year with the championship. And not only did the Bucs win the championship, Giannis was fucking sublime. He was incredible. Um, What are you seeing from Giannis this year? Do you think the Bucs are going back to the finals? Well, I mean, Giannis has had a spectacular season. I, I do think what gets lost with him is that, uh, you know, Coach Bud sort of treats Giannis's, uh, you know, on-court time 
like one of those game shows where they put people inside the glass box and they drop the money and it's like you have 30 seconds to get as much money as you can get. It's right. like Giannis, you, you get 32 minutes a night. Go out there and put up whatever crazy stats you can in 32 and then we're taking you back out. And so I think what people forget, you know, when they look at Giannis and they've been dropping a lot of games this year. I mean, you know, in some cases, like kind of bad losses that they wouldn't typically do. And I think the number one factor to keep in mind is he's going to be playing a lot more in the playoffs. Bud yep. finally figured that out last year of like, don't, you know, take off the restrictor yeah, don't, plates. Don't like, take out the beast who does everything for your team for no reason. <laughs> yeah, he figured that out. Yeah, it took a while. It took a couple extra years, but he did figure it out, right? So they're going to have a, a natural jump that I think some of these other stars who are playing, uh, you know, big minutes in the playoffs maybe aren't going to make, right? But what's also funny to me about the evolution here, how many years did we all spend as, you know, basketball Twitter dorks saying, you got to get Giannis in four shooters. You got to get Giannis in small ball lineups. We got to see what this looks like, you know. And that has played out all well and good. I mean, he's basically a defensive player of the uh, year candidate this year. I have him number two on my MVP ballot behind Jokic right now. He's been amazing, right? But the guy they miss this year is Brooke Lopez. They yeah. miss going big. And it's like the opposite of what we were all expecting for years and years. And so when you look at their team defense going from ultra elite down to just kind of average, it's because they don't have that big guy in there who, you know, you can just line up, you know, huge front line, control the boards, you know, every defensive possession is one shot and done. And so I do a little, a worry just a little bit about, okay, what's their playoff defense going to look like without him? Because Lopez had a bunch of big moments last year. When he's there, it puts Portis into a more effective role as well. So I expect, you know, Giannis, you know, it, you're going to have to rip the title out of his hands, hmm. right? I mean, he's not going to go down easily. But if they don't have Lopez, I think they're a little bit uh, of a shakier ship than they were last year. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I didn't even actually put that together when you think about the deficiencies that they've had on defense because you said two important things. Like Giannis is only playing 32 minutes and one of the best defensive bigs in the league isn't playing for you. So like, yeah, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of available minutes for the Bucs to get completely sliced and diced. I was going to say on that point real quick. I mean, look what happens when LeBron has to play the five full time, right? The defense yeah. is just one of the worst in the league. Look what happens when even KD has to play five, right? The Nets, their defense comes back to earth. So the fact that the Milwaukee's even been able to be average on defense without their starting center and asking Giannis to play that role, it's just a testament to how good he is defensively. But also, it's not championship worthy. They have to be better on defense if they're going to win a title this year. So I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's all good. I was just going to say, I'm really looking forward to watching the stretch run of this MVP thing. I'm super locked into what's happening in Philly. Um, Who's your just, pick? I, I think the Bucs are going to go to the championship. I really yeah. do. I think they're going to for, for MVP, though. For MVP, is Jokic. Again, yeah. I feel all right. like that team is so bad, but for the <laughs> grace of Nikola Jokic, man. Like, they, they have no business being competent, but for the fact that that guy is so great. He's so insanely good, so unselfish. He puts so much just confidence in the dudes around him who are just dudes. Like, Monty Morris should not be hooping like he's Rod Strickland out here. It's just, <laughs> it's just that Jokic puts that confidence in his dudes, and that's what I love about him. The most, he empowers the dudes around him. And obviously, he's got the raw stats to go with that. But, like, when you see what he does to the dudes around him who have no business being competent, NBA type of starters, heavy minute getters, and they're, you know, they just keep on chugging. He's my MVP.
I'm with you. I think the most important question to ask about any player when you're evaluating them is, does he make his teammates better? And I don't think anybody in the NBA right now, including LeBron, including Chris Paul, and Chris Paul has been way high on that list for 15 years, right? I still think Jokic is number one on that. I'm with a bullet, and uh, I'm right there with you, man. Like he's gonna get a lot of these guys paid too, right? I mean, that's the other thing about it is like you just gotta, you know, go to Denver, put in your two years, sort of like a study abroad program for some of these guys, right? Just put in your two years, you know, sit in his um, in his halo, and then cash out a big check like Jeremy Grant, man, or like Tristan Thompson back yeah. in the Cleveland days. Lord have mercy. Hey, Ben Golliver, national writer for the Washington Post, author. The man has a book, too. Go pick up his book. What's, what's the name of the book again, Ben? Uh, bubble Ball. Pick up his book, <laughs> Bubble Ball. Uh, he was in the bubble, entrenched with everybody. Obviously, one of the best reporters we got there. Obviously, one of the best minds in the game on the media side. Ben, thank you for coming on today. Tell the people where they can find you. At Ben Golfer on Twitter. And check out my podcast, Greatest of All Talk. Dot com. I do that with Andrew Sharp. You'll probably remember him uh, of from course. the old days as well. OG basketball guy. We have a good time twice a week. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Peace. Peace.